starting off, though, as you've been hearing on the news and on the Mike Smith show, Special Rapporteur David Johnston says a public inquiry into foreign interference is not needed, but public hearings should be held as part of his own mandate. That's what we heard earlier today from the former Governor General's initial report looking into foreign interference allegations. What we're saying is that a public inquiry into the questions of who knew what, what they did with, at what time and what they did with it cannot be discussed in public because to understand that fully you must deal with classified information. So the very process is not possible to get at things that you really want to get at, that people want to get at. Moreover, even if one did that in camera, that interrogation and so on, looking at classified information, you can't report it publicly because that's forbidden by the Security Information Act and it leads to all the perils I just spoke about of danger of people's lives, undermining of our systems and reaching faith with our five eye appointments. All right, that was just part of his announcement earlier today. Joining us now is Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Hamish, thank you so much for taking some time today. You're welcome, Jill. Good to be with you. I'm curious your response to what you just heard. I know there are a lot of questions about his explanation saying, well, we can't have a public inquiry because of classified information, but instead should have perhaps uh, public hearings. Yes, I thought he was going to succumb to public pressure uh, and recommend uh, a public inquiry and sort of get the government off the hook because there's been a huge demand for it from opposition parties, the media, and and so on and so forth. And Justin Trudeau sort of put himself, backed himself into a corner when he refused to have one. Um, David Johnson says in his report that he was inclined to recommend that when he undertook this assignment, but after going through the process, realized, as we just heard him say, that it's difficult. By definition, you can't have a public inquiry about classified information. Uh, he has reviewed that information. He has written a confidential report on that, and he's asked various agencies, including a, a parliamentary committee, to, to review his conclusions there and make recommendations otherwise if they feel that he's come to the wrong conclusion on that. But what he's also saying in the report is that the processes by which government um, shares information internally appear to be flawed. So intelligence reports are written um, by the people who collect the information and then they're distributed around to various other actors in government. But he is, in his report says these aren't sent to individuals, they're sent to departments. And therefore, it, it becomes difficult to know who actually received them, who read them, what did they do with that information. And he says that needs to be reviewed. And that's what he wants to hold public inquiries about, about the actual machinery of government, not the allegations that we've all heard about in the media. But isn't that an entirely different topic? Isn't the whole point or wasn't the whole point of this to get to the bottom or to find out more about the alleged interference? Well, I think there are people who certainly want to know that. I think there are others um, who, who take the broad view that um, election interference has been ongoing and the government has done nothing about it. Um, and he says, yes, election interference has been going on. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, he has a section of a report outlining the sorts of things that government has done in response. Of course, election interference continues, uh, even though the government is more attuned to it and has agencies monitoring it. Um, 
But we've also seen sort of a breakdown in communication. The prime minister says, well, I wasn't told about that. Well, reports were sent up to your office. Why weren't you told about it? And that's what he wants to uh, to start to investigate in the second part of his mandate. Uh, we heard earlier or uh, are hearing reports as well, and he's quoted in the National Post. Aaron O'Toole says that David Johnston only met with him as the report was already being translated and, and questions about just how many people were, were, were questioned and were part of uh, the intelligence gathering to go into this report. Does that not seem odd that, that Aaron O'Toole wouldn't have been questioned as part of this? Aaron O'Toole was. Um, uh, perhaps towards the end, but he did participate in that. Pierre Polyev was invited, but declined uh, to participate. Jagmeet Singh, uh, Yves-Francois Blanchet, and, and the Prime Minister, of course, did, as did other ministers. Surprisingly, a huge number of government people were um, interviewed. He's, he's were, I'm surprised how much work he was able to do in the amount of time, he, or how many people he was able to interview in the amount of time that he had. Um, but this this was a very compressed um exercise and uh, uh, it's going to you know a 55 page report is for the standards of what we would normally call a public inquiry is very short um, he will have a second report coming later in the year which will embellish it a little bit more so um, you know yeah I think these these um, allegations or criticisms are going to persist, as well as his independence and objectivity. Well, and speaking of that, I, I was just going to ask you, whether there was certainly mention of that when he uh, delivered this report earlier today and was answering questions, and and how much does that kind of deflect or take away from what's really at the heart of the issue, that there are so many questions about his objectivity? Yeah, um, I was surprised the Prime Minister chose him, uh, given um, that these are Questions of objectivity uh, in, and impartiality were going to be raised, and the Conservatives have, in particular, run away with it. Pierre Polyev has said on Twitter today that the cover-up continues. Um, I, I think that's unfair to Mr. Johnson. I think that's unfair to the work that he's done. But nonetheless, that's the political environment that we live in. And... Um, I, I think the report itself is, particularly since he's not recommended a public inquiry, um, this this only feeds that uh, that narrative that has existed now since the since the, the start of this process. What do you think could be the best outcome? Uh, like you said, if it looks at uh, some issues when it comes to the sharing of information, of maybe uh, in some cases knowingly ignoring intelligence, maybe not showing intelligence to the prime minister, if we take that at face value, what is the best case scenario? What do we glean from this? I think we've all become attuned to the fact that foreign actors are trying to interfere in our electoral system, some more than others, but, but it's more than one, um, one other country for sure. Uh, I think we have become much more attuned to that, and I think we can start holding our politicians more accountable um, for that. that this, this is a conversation which is now in the public. It's been going on for two or three decades at the very least, um, if not longer, right? You know, he in his report, he cites George Washington complaining about <laughs> foreign interference in American politics. Uh, so espionage has, of course, happened for, for, for centuries. Um, but in terms of the current environment that we're in, we're talking cer- certainly two or three decades, and it's been amplified through social media tools that foreign entities can use to manipulate public opinion in Canada and manipulate actors in Canada as well. So I think we're just much more to this, and if we can, um, if Mr. Johnson's second part of his report can fine tune our our processes for dealing with this kind of information, that that's a step forward.
I saw a response to this in the response to the fact that there wouldn't be a public inquiry, even given his explanation in that there will be so much information that cannot be shared publicly. Uh, Somebody suggested, well, this is likely going to lead to more CSIS leaks. What are your thoughts on that? Certainly somebody wasn't happy, whether or not this was somebody who wasn't happy with the prime minister or wasn't happy with what was happening with information. Uh, Could this potentially lead to more CSIS leaks? And what does that say about the whole process? It could. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I think we need to welcome these CSIS leaks because it's, it's raised hugely important issues. On the other hand, um, when you're an intelligence officer, or, you know, presumably it's a CSIS person who's leaked the information. You know, CSIS reports are shared in other branches of government, so it could have come elsewhere. But if you're a frustrated civil servant who feels that nothing is happening, Um, you're sort of in the middle of the picture. You don't have the whole government perspective of what's going on. So you may feel like nothing is happening when when things have actually happened. And of course, very often the response in espionage is clandestine as well. So we don't necessarily (laughs) see that there has been a response in the spy world. That's what spying is all about. So Uh, But evidently, obviously, I think people are going to continue to be frustrated. And so we may well see more information being leaked. If you are somebody then that is on the other side, if you are somebody who's attempting to to uh, be the one making the interference, being uh, the interferer, uh, do you look at this as a win today or how does this how do you think this is going to be seen on that more international stage? I think one of the biggest objectives of foreign actors interfering on our electoral system is to sow division um, and and to polarize our politics. And so, yes, I think that, that, you know, when when people are dismissing this work by the former governor general, high respected individual as as part of a cover up. Uh, I think many foreign actors think that their work has been done quite successfully here. Um, and that's, you know, we saw the same in the United States with the Mueller investigation about Russian interference in 2016. Robert Mueller was a highly respected um, political actor in the United States, and his report was received in purely partisan terms. And and that's the way that uh, this appears to be going as well with our report here by the former governor general. And, and I think foreign actors welcome that kind of division in our politics. Hamish Telford, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome, John. We have been talking about Surrey Memorial Hospital, not only Surrey Memorial, certainly healthcare in general, the sending of patients to Bellingham for cancer treatments, but Surrey Memorial also in the news because of the doctors sending the anonymous letter saying the conditions are not sustainable, that people are being treated in hallways, that people are not getting anywhere near the level of care in some cases that they deserve and that something needs to change. Well, many of you will know Ben Dooley is the producer of this show. He recently spent a week at Surrey Memorial Hospital and wanted to join the show to talk a little bit more about what he saw from the inside. Hey, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. I'll make it clear by by no means was it put to you that, hey, you were in the hospital, you must come on the show and tell us all about it. But rather, you wanted to share your experience because we don't often get somebody who spent that amount of time in a healthcare setting. Some some good points, perhaps some lower points. And so thanks for doing this. Yeah, no no worries. And, and you know, I just want to start off by saying, you know, I'm I'm really thankful uh, to the the doctors and nurses uh, 
at, at Spirit Memorial um, because for, for the most part, I, I received uh, good care and I'm, I'm lucky uh, to be back home and, and healthy now. Uh, well, when you went into the hospital as well, uh, we were keeping in touch and uh, it was a bit alarming because there was first the story of two people that were in the emergency room. They went to visit a patient and there was a stabbing that took place. And I reached out to, to you to see, did you hear about this? What was happening? And, and you didn't hear about that, which was good. I thought that's great. You were nowhere near uh, where that happened. But you were also in the hospital when that letter came out from the emergency room doctors that were just talking about some of the very, very trying conditions in both the ER, patients being treated in hallways, spending way too much time in the emergency department. Did you see any of that? Oh, absolutely. I, I saw a lot of that. Uh, so I, I went to, to Surrey Memorial uh, on, on Thursday evening, and uh, I was admitted um, within a few hours. Uh, which which was good, um, but then I spent uh, I spent two days uh, in the emergency room as an admitted patient uh, before I was moved uh, into the high acuity ward, which is still kind of uh, part of uh, the emergency room, and spent a day uh, in there before finally um, on Sunday I was moved uh, into the the general medicine unit. So that's, you know, three days before I was actually up uh, on a medical unit and and probably taking up space uh, in, in the emergency room uh, for people who, who you know, who, whose care was, was urgent and, and would probably have uh, done better with that space. Right. And, and that was my question. That, that wasn't that you needed to stay in the, the high acuity ward or you're needed to stay in that area. You could have gone on to another room or gone to a room much sooner than that. Yes, I, I could have uh, been admitted um, to the general, admit, uh, general medicine unit probably Friday uh, morning, but uh, they just ha- had nowhere, nowhere to put me um, because uh, things are Things are so overwhelmed at, at the hospital. And were there others? Could you tell other people around you that were kind of in the same situation? Yeah, so um, as I was, you know, so I, I got a room uh, to myself on my first uh, two nights there. And as I was, I was heading to the room that they put me in, I saw, uh, you know, a lot of people, mostly older, um, racialized folks, uh, that uh, you know may not uh, be able to to communicate um, with their doctors and nurses uh, piled uh, and not piled piled is probably the wrong word but uh, throughout the hallways um, so yes the hallways were were filled with with patients um, waiting for care and and you mentioned being able to communicate how much did you notice that in that obviously you could communicate well with the the, the doctors and nurses and, and other healthcare professionals but what was what did you observe for people that maybe uh, had more difficulty communicating uh, with the people around them yeah you know i i think that uh, uh, the, the fact that i was able to communicate um with my doctors and nurses uh you know was was a lot more uh, helpful to my care, you know, if I needed Tylenol or whatever, I could uh, press the button and a nurse uh, would come in and get that for me. Um, and towards the end of my stay, where where things were were getting better, 
you know, I I wasn't asking for very much, uh, and the nurses weren't uh, checking on me a ton because they were they were just so busy, and and it definitely felt like you know because they were so busy and overwhelmed. If you weren't asking uh, for for their help, or they didn't obviously see that you needed help, that uh, that your care may may have been neglected. Right. And like you said off the top, too, this isn't any kind of it's not, not to, to be negative on the people that are working in the healthcare settings, but it's just the, the situation with the number of patients and the scenarios that they're dealing with now. Yeah. Like I said, you know, the nurses are doing are doing the best that they can uh, under under the circumstances. There is just uh, so so many more patients uh, in Surrey Memorial. And, you know, it, it's been a, a long time since I, I had an uh, extended stay in hospital, but I would say that, that you know, it's definitely the, the, the most overwhelmed uh, that I've seen the hospital in a, in a long time. How big of a difference do you think it makes or did it make for you that you were in there but also had a family support network and you had people that were coming in and that were that knew your scenario and, and that strong support network? Because I'm sure there are many other patients that were there that didn't have people that were there to kind of be their patient advocate. Oh, that, that made a, a huge difference because, uh, you know, there are aspects of my, of my personal care that... Uh, the doctors and, and nurses had had no idea how to to deal with, and if you know, I didn't have uh, a net support network. Uh, you know that that stuff uh, wouldn't wouldn't have been dealt with because the the doctors and nurses, uh, you know, didn't didn't know how to deal with it, and and d- didn't have time to to figure out um, how to deal with it. So. So having a support network uh, and and being able to you know talk about my my medical conditions, what's normal for me, what's not, um, gave the doctors and nurses uh, more information so that they could provide um, better treatment for me too. And is that something as well that? you would have had or or you could have gotten from a family doctor or did you get the sense on on the importance again or the difference of showing up in a hospital setting like that and not having all of your background with someone like a family doctor well so so for, for full disclosure i currently uh, don't have a family doctor and i can say with 100% uh certainty that if i did have a family doctor i wouldn't have uh, ended up in in Surrey Memorial in the first place because my my condition would not have gotten to the point that it required uh, a stay at uh, at Surrey Memorial which is a pretty huge thing when you think of well the fact that you then had to spend a week in hospital and if that happened to you chances are it's happening to others with the thousands of people we know in BC that don't have a family doctor Exactly, you know my my condition. Uh, you know it, it's a recurring issue. Happens every uh, couple of years for me, and and every time uh, you know that it's happened before, I've gone to my family doctor and gotten a referral to uh, the people I I need to see uh, and had it dealt with in the community. But now I don't have a family doctor, and I wasn't able to be seen. Uh, in the community for the, the issue that I was having. And, and it got to the point where, you know, I, I had to go to emergency 
and they had to had to keep me uh, in hospital for a week uh, to to make sure that I was okay. And it and it luckily, you know, I I am okay. But it it very very easily could not have turned out that way, um, and it didn't need to get to that point. Right. Which, and again, is pretty, it's a pretty shocking, well, maybe not shocking for people that have been through anything like you just were, but it's certainly not to the medical system, not to the, the way we would like it to, to operate. Uh, does anything stand out to you, Ben, that, or did anybody go above and beyond? Or I know nobody likes to be in the hospital, but was there anything that kind of made you stop and think, oh, wow, this is, uh, this is somebody that's uh, truly, truly trying to make the stay for people better? Uh, you know what? I, I want to give a, a, a bit of a shout out um, to my nurse, uh, Dina, uh, who was uh, in the general uh, medicine unit. You know, she was she was an all star uh, and, and she she was the, the best nurse um, that I had uh, while I was in uh, Surrey Memorial. She did a good job of, you know, uh, monitoring all of her patients uh, to the to the best that uh, she could, and, and uh, made sure to check on me uh, when I was, you know, in a room with with six other uh, people, and that that made it easier for her to check on me because because she could see all of us in the same room uh, at the same time and could see if anyone uh, was having any, any difficulty. So she was a huge help. Uh, to to uh, my care and uh, you know the, all the doctors uh, were great too. Doctor Dindu uh, was really helpful um, when I was getting moved up to the general medicine unit uh, to to talk about you know how can I get uh, the best care uh, in the unit? What do I need to talk to the nurses and the doctors there about? And and he was a, a huge help too. So, you know, just very grateful to the doctors and nurses there uh, who got me home uh, healthy and on the road to recovery. All right. Well, Ben, thanks uh, for sharing your experience. And uh, unfortunately, I'm sure there are others that uh, heard what you said and can also relate as it's probably happening to many, many people. But thank you so much. Thanks for having me. taking a look at some health news now and an international group of experts is redefining concussions, providing a new standard for diagnosing mild traumatic brain injury and this was a process that was led by researchers from the University of BC as well as the Harvard affiliated Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital and joining us to talk more about this is Dr. Noah Silverberg Associate Professor in UBC's Department of Psychology also co-lead of the project Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. When this talks about a new standard for diagnosing mild traumatic brain injury, what does that look like? Yeah, so we've made a lot of progress in the field in understanding what a mild traumatic brain injury is. Everything from sophisticated uh, blood tests and neuroimaging techniques and so on. But one problem that has persisted is just the basic definition of what is a mild TBI and who has one. So there have been many different definitions proposed over the years, leaving us in a position where a patient going to one doctor or another might uh, get a diagnosis someplace but, but not the other. And also research studies using their own kind of idiosyncratic definition of concussion, making it hard to 
put information together across multiple studies to draw big picture conclusions or even compare studies. It's kind of an apples and oranges situation. So uh, for the past almost four years, we've led an uh, international expert consensus group to come up with kind of a unified, updated uh, definition of mild TBI, one that can be applied to individual patients to determine if they've had uh, a brain injury or not. And so the process involved looking at the available research evidence and then uh, filling in gaps uh, in the evidence with uh, expert consensus. So we got together a variety of different kinds of uh, healthcare professionals from emergency medicine to neurology, neurosurgery, uh, physiatry, et cetera, and led a consensus process to try to figure out what are the signs and symptoms and tests that can be used to identify whether somebody's had a mild traumatic brain injury or not. And was it a challenge in that does it present differently in different people and there's not kind of that you can just check off the Mm -hmm. boxes? That's right. I'd say there's two major challenges. One is that the signs and symptoms can be fairly subtle and short-lived. So by the time somebody actually gets to medical attention, there's not a whole lot left to see. Um, And the other, as you mentioned, is the variability from one person to the next in terms of what they experience and uh, making diagnosis a challenge. And when we talk about a brain injury, is it, I I guess it's kind of, it's obviously oversimplifying it to be, well, if you've had, if you say have had a a crash during a sporting event or you've done something where you've hit your head very hard, then that's the indicator. But I would imagine there are other ways or other causes that lead to these mild brain injuries. There are lots of different ways to get a mild traumatic brain injury. And so some of the more common we see are, are falls and car crashes and uh, collisions in a sporting or recreation setting. Um, and then there are other important causes like intimate partner violence uh, and also assaults uh, outside of uh, intimate relationships uh, and many, many others, workplace incidents uh, and so on. But yeah, what they have in common is uh, some kind of physical force, usually a blow to the head or Uh, some force causing the head to jolt and shake the brain uh, within the skull that impairs brain function. And when we talk about mild, is there is there like um, a benchmark, or is there to to be yeah. it, to, for it to be mild, it obviously has to meet certain markers. And how do you know when you go from being mild to something more serious? Yeah, I'll say that uh, it's a, it's a bit arbitrary and probably outdated um, how we do that. So. We, for this initiative, uh, were very focused on defining the sort of lower threshold, like what differentiates a bump on the head from, from a brain injury, and didn't pay as much attention to the threshold between a mild traumatic brain injury and moderate severe, in part because there are other initiatives going on in the world to kind of update how we classify the severity of brain injury in a more nuanced way. Um, so at present, you know, we consider, uh, as has been done for many years, a mild traumatic brain injury to be anything that results in a, a relatively brief, if any, uh, lots of consciousness. 
so being knocked out, uh, if at all, for, for less than 30 minutes, um, being uh, confused or having uh, memory problems for up to 24 hours. Th- th- those are sort of the, the typical benchmarks. I will just add that the term mild can be a bit misleading because for some patients, the injury is anything but mild and can result in uh, lasting symptoms and, and disability. So in coming up with this new standard then for diagnosing, is the idea then that by diagnosing uh, this under this new way, that will lead to a better treatment? Yeah, we're just trying to get the right people into care and into uh, research studies so that we can better understand this condition. And uh, up until this point, it's been uh, pretty haphazard and all over the place. Because is it something, a brain injury, is it something that needs rehabilitation or is it something that, that could mm-hmm. also, when if just left, will eventually heal yeah. itself? Yeah, for many people, the symptoms of mild traumatic brain injury recover on their own, um, typically within days or, or weeks, uh, in, in some cases uh, months or longer. Um, but there are a number of people, somewhere between uh, one in three, one in six, who have symptoms uh, that limit their day-to-day activities lasting for more than uh, six months or so. Uh, and we can identify who they are earlier on. So if symptoms are still going on a, a month or so after an injury, it's about at that time point, we say, um, probably just waiting it out with natural recovery is, is not best, but it's time to get some active treatment. And do we have pretty good treatments for these brain injuries or for concussions? We don't have a lot of very well-established, highly effective treatments. I would say there is um, modest evidence supporting a small handful of treatments, and they they include um, just aerobic exercise and some treatments that are targeting specific symptoms that people may experience after a mild TBI, such as headaches or, or dizziness. And so where does the the research go from here? Like you said, looking at getting people into different studies and those types of things. What do you hope will happen next, uh, the next step in the research? Well, our our hope is for widespread adoption of these diagnostic criteria. So uh, clinicians and and researchers around the world, really, um, across settings in in sport and civilian trauma and military are all using kind of the same definition of of mild TBI in uh, both clinical care and and research. And and so this is something we're, we're working towards. And is there a time frame for this or is it something as far as you obviously need people to study and need people to, to get the information from? Yeah, it'll, it'll be an ongoing process probably for some years. I mean, we've learned from uh, other health conditions that when a new set of diagnostic criteria or guideline for treatment comes out, it, it can take years uh, for uh, people to to use it consistently, um, and not just years of, of passive waiting, but lots of uh, proactive efforts towards in continuing medical education and policy change and, and so on to, to really get uptake happening. All right. Well, it's a very interesting study and interesting findings when it comes to uh, brain injuries. Dr. Silverberg, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Take care.
Well, it has been three years since a restaurant on Broadway near Main Street was forced to close in, close down because of a cave-in of a construction site next door. But there is some good news. That restaurant is reopened. And joining us to talk a little bit more about what that has been like is Eric Chang, the owner of the Kanji Noodle House. Eric, thanks so much for taking some time today. Oh, hi. Hi, thanks so much. Hello. for. Hi, can you hear us? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for, for doing this. I know it's probably very busy uh, for you having reopened. Before we get into that, though, can you kind of remind people what happened? I know it was a cave-in of the construction site next door. What unfolded that day? Oh, the uh, half of the parking lot collapsed uh, along with the retaining wall of, uh, uh, next door. Um because they were planning to build a six-story high uh, apartment. And do you, um, do you remember when... Of, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering if you remember when you got word that uh, maybe, you know, get down to the restaurant or we're going to have to shut this place down because of what happened next door. Well, because uh, um, along with the parking, the gas line and water line is also ruptured so we have no gas and no water and also part of the building was damaged the corner of the building so hmm. were you there so, when it happened or, or you got called to, to come to come and see what happened to your restaurants um i wasn't there at, uh, uh, at that time but uh um, actually, I, I, I would, well, sorry, excuse me a sec. Sure. Because uh, it happened so sudden, mm-hmm. and uh, we were already closed down uh, prior to that uh, incident. So um, it happened around 5 or 6 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. Um, and... Uh, and then right away, the city come in and uh, uh, close close down the area. And at the time, did they give you any idea how long your restaurant would be shut down, or or how long before you might be able to get back and be back in business? No, not at all. And right after that, right after that is the COVID nineteen. Hmm. So. Uh, pretty much uh, most of the city hall is kind of straight down to most of the departments. So it's, uh, nobody knows exactly uh, how long it's going to take. Against uh, uh, And also, it's hard to get trade people around that time, too. <laughs> right. So uh, a whole bunch of different things going on kind of all at once. Yes, exactly. And so you have been able, though, it's been three years since that happened. Did you did you plan the whole time that you would reopen the restaurant? We do. I mean, you know, we were just waiting for the place to be, uh, you know, the restoration jobs finished so that we can reopen again. But um, we didn't realize it's going to take that long. <laughs> Why did it take so long? Oh, uh, it's a long story, but I don't really want to get into the detail on that. Sure. All right. Uh, 
but but safe to say it took a whole lot longer that that you here you were you had this very popular restaurant it was shut down because of a construction site and you've just been kind of waiting and waiting for the green light to go ahead and to get back in business uh, the green line i don't know the green line is going to take another couple more years i suppose uh but it's going to be uh but but uh i'm sorry uh uh, the customer just walked in. Oh. Uh, uh, anyways, uh, the green light is, uh, I believe, might have an impact uh, on the business. I don't know, because the traffic is not as, uh, I mean, like, uh, it, part of the Broadway is still blocked off, right? Right. So there's limited traffic around the area. Right. Did you ever think about moving to a different location or you wanted to stay where you are well, at Broadway? We are, we are planning to stay here. Right. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be staying here for sure. And I remember, uh, Eric, when this happened, I was actually working for Global at the time and, and was one of the reporters that, that covered this. And I remember being at the site, looking at the collapse of the construction site. But what also stays with me is the number of customers that came up that were talking about how much they love the restaurant and how much how sad they were that it was closed. And at that point, I think people only thought it was going to be closed maybe for a few weeks or a few months and that it would be back. Uh, so how how, how supportive kind of have customers been through all of this waiting three years for the Kanji Noodle House to open up again? Oh, I believe there's lots of customers are very anxious of waiting for us to reopen again. And uh, I've been bumping into a customer that uh, they've been asking us uh, the same questions every time, you know, like uh, not just myself, but some of my, uh, most of my staff or other management people. And, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the same questions, uh, are, you know, every time. Well, when are you guys going to be open again? Oh, we are waiting for, for you to, re- I mean, to reopen. You know, same questions always pop up. Yeah, I, th- I think people have, have been anxious for sure. Do you still have any of the, the same staff with you at the restaurant? Uh, well, most of them. Uh, I, I would say uh, at least probably half of them. But mind you, I mean, they've been like over three years. Some of them already either some retired, some uh, changed jobs, you know. So, yes, uh, uh, we we are able to maintain at least uh, pretty much close to half the staff. Hmm. That's pretty impressive, given that given that three years, a lot can change and people can move on in in a three years time span. Yeah, also most of some of them uh, have been with us since uh, I mean, day one, or some have been with us for over ten, twenty years. Hmm. Yeah. Will the restaurant look any different uh, now that it's uh, reopened? Uh, some minor changes. Um, we're going to have two VIP rooms. Uh, so, uh, other than that, uh, the rest, the dining area is pretty much uh, the same as before, except the two VIP rooms added on. 
Right. I I know that people, it is the, the kanji noodle house. And my guess is your answer to this question might be, well, everything is great. And, and I know people rave about the food, but are there specific dishes that are the most popular or why is it you think you have such a, a clientele that is so dedicated to your restaurant? Uh, most of the dishes is going to be the same, you know, like our main focus is the barbecue uh, and also congee and also noodles. Uh, other than that, we're going to, we do have some, uh, bring in some uh, new dishes, like uh, uh, different tastes, like, uh, um, uh, how should I put it? Uh, um, I'm sorry, is this live or? Yes, yes it is. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I no, just, I, it's okay. I feel like I'm with you I in the restaurant. Re- it's, I, no, it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. Okay, I thought somebody. Oh, okay. Anyways, uh, um, yeah, different uh, um, ethnic food, uh, a type of food, you know, like um, Malaysian. Uh, just, just, I mean, just a feel, you know, like uh, dif- uh, th- uh, different dishes, maybe a rainbow. Right, and uh, and so, are you officially open, or is the official open date tomorrow? It is tomorrow. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's great. I know the neighborhood is going to be so uh, pleased. So many people have been waiting for the Kanji Noodle House to come back and to reopen. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on reopening. Oh, thank you for calling. Yeah. Okay.